0: Jeff, let's just jump right into it. You chaired a Lancet commission to explore, among other things, the origins of COVID. Could you please just share with the audience what you learned through that experience? Well, I I learned it's a
1: complicated story, and I learned that we haven't been hearing exactly the the full story all along the way. You know, this Lancet commission was set up in mid-2020, a few months after the outbreak began, to look at what was happening, to try to make recommendations along the way of this global emergency, and then to take a step back what we thought would be at the end or towards the end of the pandemic and make an assessment of what happened and what lessons can we learn. We've just issued the final report of the Lancet Commission at the time of the UN General Assembly in September. One of the topics, as you mentioned, was where did this virus, the SARS-CoV-2 virus come from? And I can tell you at the beginning, I was reading the newspapers and I had enough experience with zoonotic diseases, I had worked on AIDS. Public policy. Of course, I'm an economist, not a medical doctor, a research, a research scientist in virology. But I had worked on zoonotic breakthroughs and pandemic response in the past and had chaired a commission for the World Health Organization more than 20 years ago on investing in health for economic development. So I uh, thought this is. Uh, like SARS actually in 2003 4 which was a spillover we think from uh, a market to probably a a palm civet is the animal that is designated as most likely culprit of the first SARS infection and i read the newspapers and i thought well this is probably yet another of these zoonotic diseases like ebola or like HIV, in fact, uh, or like SARS. Then came the attacks starting in Washington. Well, this is something that China concocted. And I thought, oh my God, here we go. Now we're going to turn this into geopolitics. So I more or less felt even more convinced that this was a natural spillover. And when I was asked to head the Lancet Commission, I Reached out to a person that I knew had been working on zoonotic spillovers for a decade, Peter Daschuk. <laughs> so I stepped right into what would be an absolutely wild ride. Peter Daschuk heads something called Eco Health Alliance, and <coughs> it is an organization based on the threats of zoonotic spillovers that is emerging diseases coming out of nature. And they were doing monitoring and collecting viruses and looking for outbreaks in rural areas in China and Southeast Asia. So I thought, oh, go to the source, go to the person who's most monitoring this and ask that person to head the task force on origins. Now the Lancet commission had 10 task forces. So this was only one of the topics, but one that was very interesting and quite important, and went ahead after I asked him to head that task force, and I recruited a group of scientists, pretty much like-minded scientists. I could see people who were working one way or another on natural spillovers. So that went on for a, a few months. and. We were attending to other issues. Should you wear face masks? <laughs> what about lockdowns? Is, is the vaccine coming or not? How would it be used? There were so many issues and debates, and the origins was, in, in a way, seemingly an intellectual exercise, but not the most immediate practical concern. And by the summer and fall of 2020, One major article had come out in Nature Medicine in March, 2020, called The Proximal Origins of SARS-CoV-2, which I had read carefully, I thought, which described why this was a natural spillover. And there was a section in the middle that said, not from a lab, just doesn't have the right markings and nothing in the lab was much like this, and you could really Rule that out. So by the late fall 2020, I was knowingly telling other people, yeah, this is natural. Don't listen to this stuff. You know, lots of conspiracies, crazy, crazy ideas around, but I'm pretty much on the inside and I can tell you that, that this is natural. I think things started to uh, turn in early 2021. First of all, there were a few dogged reporters, very few, and not one in a mainstream outlet, Mm -hmm. nobody in the New York Times or Washington Post or Wall Street Journal or Financial Times or any of the major English language newspapers that were saying anything other than, well, it's, it's natural. And China's probably hiding what happened in the marketplace and but clearly it, it came out of nature. But there were a few reporters, even filing lawsuits, tell us something about what's going on. And of course, I started to hear the controversies around Health Alliance because people were saying, hey, maybe Eco Health Alliance, the, the group that I had basically brought into the Lancet Commission, but because it was there, maybe they... No more than they're telling us. And so I started asking questions and started reading the controversies late. I can't take any credit for early insight on this, but I started asking. And of course, what happened was more and more disparities with the, the natural story started to come out at first, no animal was found. Anywhere in China, tens of thousands tested and no evidence whatsoever of a natural spillover. And more and more stories started to come out that, well, some fairly dangerous research or suspicious research or research we don't really understand was underway at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. And lo and behold, connected with EcoHealth Alliance. So, of course, I was open-minded about this to be sure, and, uh, started asking questions of Dashan and, uh, was not getting honest answers from Dashan. He was evasive, denying that research that others were vociferously claiming to be done was actually done. A- and he said things that immediately I knew were not true to media saying, we don't do any research like that. We don't have any experiments of that kind. All we do is work with the local communities. Statements that were absolutely untrue and deeply misleading. Well, that's extraordinarily uncomfortable if you're chairing a commission. And at that point, I started calling around to uh, many more of my friends and colleagues, and they pointed me to others. and. I got a thorough briefing really for the first time about a year, not less than a year, but probably by early spring, 2021. And the experiments that were being done were explained to me. And this was really striking for me, you know, again, I'm an economist, I'm not a lab bench scientist, but I can read. The articles, and I was (laughs) given a reading list, and I went through them and I went back to Dashig and said, Peter, this is really concerning. I'd like to see your grant proposal uh, that is the base of this work. And he said, No, no, I can't give that to you. And I said, What do you mean? This is an NIH grant, and I need to see it. I need to understand this right now. No, no, no. I can't give this to you. My lawyers. Said, I can't. Whoa, Peter, we're transparent commission. You're heading a task force on origins. If you can't give this, you can't chair this commission. That's for sure. To clarify,
0: Jeffrey, that was a funded grant. Yes, yeah, that one was
1: a funded grant. So I wanted to know the details
0: of it. It was potentially available through FOIA or other method
1: in, well, in the future. It, it, it soon came out by FOIA, so I got to read it, but not from Dashik, <laughs> And so I started to see the resistance inside. I told him he could not chair this uh, task force. He could stay on the commission, but he could not be in charge of this. Then soon afterwards, that very grant was FOIA'd and uh, was released by Freedom of Information Act. Whoa! That was quite concerning because this documented exactly the dangerous research, especially in in this case, creating chimeric viruses by taking virus backbones and replacing spike proteins on that backbone to test for pathogenicity and transmissibility and infectivity of the chimeras. So the kind of -of gain-of-function research that was increasingly being debated on the fringes, but not in the mainstream. And where NIH was saying, we, we don't, we don't support data function research. And there was the con- the confrontation between Rand Paul and, and Fauci and Fauci absolutely denied all of this. But then the pipeline started to open up a little bit and I saw that what Dashig had represented to me was absolutely not true. So I told him, you can't be on this commission. You can't be on the task force. At which point the task force <laughs> erupted against me. Sachs, you're siding with the, the dark side, anti-science and and so forth. And I said, look, I want from all of you clarification about potential conflicts of interest. Are you associated with Wuhan Institute of Virology? Are you associated with EcoHealth Alliance? Do you have other affiliations that could be potential conflicts of interest? Because I'm chairing a transparent, open, unbiased assessment. And I need to know now from you. Silence, silence from the group. I gave them a week, please submit things. If you have any doubts, please talk to me about the doubts because I need to know about them and we can talk them through silence, two weeks, three weeks, no response at all, except that one of the scientists on this task force. Absolutely lambasted me for recklessness, anti-science and really in extraordinarily crude terms, I must say pretty, I don't know, this is just words in a, in a world of much more violence. So, uh, you know, one can take it, but still really excoriating terms about gross irresponsibility and gross anti-scientific and unprofessional behavior because of this and so forth. Then the next FOIA came out the next week and showed that that guy was a co-investigator with Daschig on the ground. I could not believe it because I had asked for any kind of conflict of interest. The guy that is excoriating me is up to his neck in exactly this research program and never
0: admitted it. Okay. Can I I ask you about that particular research program? So it's NIAID. That's correct. They do bioweapons research and some of their funding comes from defense or sort of spooky sources. And they're one of the biggest in terms of funding institutes at NIH. Is that, am I correct in thinking that? Yeah. They
1: don't call it biowarfare, and I cannot authoritatively tell you what they do. They call it biodefense. But the fact of the matter is that they manage the U.S. biodefense program to a very significant extent, and they right. don't want us looking. That's for sure. They right. don't want so, us to know. They don't want us to know the details,
0: and they don't tell us the details. And so, so but, by, by by treaty, we are not allowed to do offensive research on bioweapons, but we're allowed to do defensive research. But the line is very blurry because if you're developing a vaccine against potential weapons your enemies might use, you still need to have access to dangerous viruses that the enemy might use. And so the the line is, I think, very unclear between offensive and defensive uses of of bioweapons.
1: Well, I, I think it's unclear for a much simpler reason as well, which is that it is completely unsupervised. From the public point of view, we don't have a clue as to what's going on. And they don't want us to know. And they're not telling, and they're not telling Congress, and they're not telling the public. And by the way, one of the interesting Freedom of Information Act responses by NIH, by this NIAID, was a lawsuit for them to report on their research on SARS-like viruses, coronaviruses. And they, <laughs> they release, and you cannot even believe it, but you can find it online. I think it was the Intercept that, that, that had this one. They released a, a 290 page report that has the cover page of the NIH research program, essentially on beta coronaviruses. And then every one of the 290 pages is 100% redacted. In other words, they, they they gave, as response to the lawsuit, 290 blank pages, and we're supposed to trust them, which, of course, as my story progresses, I I don't trust them to turn around because they haven't told the truth from the very start. So just to not go into every twist and turn of this saga, suffice it to say that The group that had assembled was completely, uh, in up to their necks in EcoHealth Alliance, Wuhan, everything. So, I disbanded that entirely, but we came to understand pretty quickly that there were two huge kinds of problems uh, that were at stake. One was the research that was underway was dangerous, certainly. And it was U.S. funded, U.S. backed and U.S. technology, I would say, to a great extent, and especially technology led out of the University of North Carolina, where this cutting edge viral manipulation is done. And that's one part, and somebody leaked. The proposal that was made to DARPA, the Defense Department Research Agency, for an extraordinarily dangerous set of experiments, a really remarkable document called the Diffuse Proposal, which is a three-way partnership of University of North Carolina, Wuhan Institute of Virology, and EcoHealth Alliance, and the proposal on page 10 which is, it says, this is 2017. It says there are more than 180 previously unreported strains of Sarbico viruses, that is, SARS like viruses. On page 11, it says, we will test these or examine these viruses. And when they don't have a particular part of the genome called a proteolytic cleavage site, We will insert a proteolytic cleavage site into the virus. What they're saying there is we will deliberately make these previously unreported viruses much more dangerous because the research program at UNC and in association with others had established clearly that adding in this piece of the genome called a proteolytic cleavage site, and specifically a furin cleavage site, because furin is the enzyme that cleaves this spike protein. By inserting that, you create a dangerous pathogen. That's the bottom line. And that was
0: the research program. Can I interrupt for one second? So this was five years ago that this proposal was written, and five years in the field of gene editing is a really long time. So when you talk to actual experts, how many of them would say, not, not only a, you know, could SARS, could COVID have come from the lab, but even putting that aside, if we wanted to, could we actually, with today's technology, actually make something as dangerous as COVID?
1: Well, Well, uh, first of all, the, the, what, what we have in SARS-CoV-2 is a SARS-like virus with the furin cleavage site, and maybe with some other tinkering, but the core of the biological innovation, whether from nature or from a laboratory, is to add the furin cleavage site, and that is four amino acids that make all the difference in the infectivity. SARS just is not very infectious. That's why it died out after killing several hundred people, but it died out. It didn't kill 18 million people. Because it's not so infectious, add in RRAR sequence into this genome and wow, you've got a doozy. And so the real question that, and I'm coming to this second part, the the real question is where'd that furin clement site come from? Okay. Well, the diffuse grant said, ah, maybe they put it there because especially in retrospect, Looking at the sequence of research articles and interviews that Ralph Berrick, among others, gave, he's the head of the lab at UNC, they were on the trail of furin cleavage sites. That's for sure. This was a major focus because they knew that's the secret sauce to make a SARS-like virus really dangerous. So they were on that trail and they wanted to do these experiments. Okay. That's one thing that we learned in the fall of 2021, we, the public. The second that thing that we learned is that there was an incredibly, uh, incredibly, uh, suspicious, and I would say at this point, manipulative series of meetings in late January to early February, 2020, that has been brilliantly documented by the reporter, Emily Kopp the U.S. Right-to-Know organization, and through all the lawsuits that U.S. Right-to-Know and others have undertaken, she has pieced together a timeline that really makes your hair stand on end. And the timeline is basically that in late January, 2020, a lot of scientists were saying, whoa, look at that furin cleavage site. How'd that get in there? That's really unusual. Bats, by the way, would not like that furin cleavage site. So it didn't, it, it, it didn't evolve within the bat reservoir because RRAR is not good for bats, which hold this enterically, not in the lungs. And because mm-hmm. of that, the, the furin cleavage site is not something that would naturally evolve within the bat population. So a number of scientists are saying, wait a minute, where'd that thing come from? This is again, within a few weeks of the genome being known. And it was posted ostensibly January 11th, 2020 for the world to see. And the scientists looked at it and said quite immediately, they focused right in on this one S2 junction of the spike protein, saw the furin cleavage site, said something really odd is going on. Mm -hmm. So Fauci and Collins, Collins being the head of NIH called a conference call for February 1, 2020.
0: This this is the call with Jeremy Farrar at the Wellcome
1: Trust. So Jeremy Farrar at Wellcome Trust organizes uh, the call and then summarizes it in an email and thanks to, not, not thanks to transparency and honesty, but thanks to Freedom of Information Act, we know what was on the call. And what was on the call was that most of the scientists said, "Eh, pretty suspicious. Some said, I can't figure out how nature could ever have done this. Others said, 80-20 lab, 70-30 lab, 50-50 lab. But basically, oh, this really could have come out of a laboratory. So
0: just to reiterate, reiterate, early 2020, initial reactions, having known that now that we knew what the genome was for COVID, initial reactions were plausible to have been of lab origin, maybe some people, even 80-20 lab origin, how do you think those numbers have changed in the subsequent two years? So if you talk to those same scientists and they give you their on suppose, hypothetically, they gave you your, their honest opinion, would those numbers have changed in either direction very much? Well, I, I think the stunning thing that we know is that
1: within three days, they went from 70-30 lab or 80-20 lab to a hundred to zero natural, because what we see is a narrative concocted,
0: concocted. Right, I, right. I, 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 I accept your claim that there has been an active cover-up or deception. Yes. Yep. The, the secondary issue is though, what is the sort of best scientific opinion today about Okay. The, the, so the best scientific opinion <laughs> depends because
1: those who are in on this narrative are dug in deeply. And when other scientists say, you know, boy, this, this looks like a a lab creation or it easily could have been a lab creation, or that isn't that exactly what the diffuse grant said it would (laughs) be. They get excoriated by this quite narrow group. Uh, it's not a large group. It is a group around Farrar and Fauci. Uh, it's actually not the profession by any means. It's a quite small group of the same people from the start. At the very start, they said lab. Three days later, they said nature. You can even track comments that, gee, this would be bad if the rumor started that this was from a lab and so forth. So they concocted a narrative without the scientific basis. What's fascinating for me, and I mentioned it obliquely earlier, was I then went back to read Proximal Origins as all of this was spilling out. And I just could not believe what I had missed the first time. And I think what everybody missed, because it's almost a joke. In the section where it says this couldn't have come from a lab, the argument is this couldn't have come from a lab because It's unlike any previously reported virus. That's the argument. Well, first of all, it could have been an unreported virus. We know from the Fuse that there were more than 180 unreported viruses. But they say, no, it wasn't like a previously reported virus. And then what made my jaw drop is the footnote to that statement is to a 2014 paper. That's almost a joke. I recommend everybody look at footnote 20 uh, to proximal origins because it's unbelievable. They're looking at an outbreak in 2020 and they're denying that it could have come from a lab citing a 2014 paper. And what is absolutely profoundly inappropriate about that paper is that they don't say we don't know what the lab was doing, we need to know what the lab was doing, we can't make definitive statements about what the lab was doing because we're not privy to them being in March 2020 and not having access to the lab notebooks. They don't say any of that. They don't even hint at the idea that more information could be found out by understanding the experiments that were being done. They just put the curtain down and say, no, it is not from a lab. And that's the phoniness of what happened. That is a concocted narrative. That's for sure. They made it up. Now they justify it. God knows they could even be right, by the way. But yes, if they were not making these assertions on the basis of scientific evidence or rigorous thinking. Or even thinking plainly about the kind of evidence one should have to make these announcements. Now, what happened afterwards was they said this in 2020, they tamped down all of the counter-arguments who were then labeled as fringe scientists. and, And they thought that they would tamp this down once and for all. Then the diffuse grant was leaked or the grant proposal was leaked. What's interesting is not one of those scientists involved in proximal Origin said, oh, I didn't know about that. Oh, that's interesting. Well, that, that changes something about what we said, not one of them. My view, they're not being honest. It's not that they're so sure because they don't have an animal in the marketplace. They, by the way, even if there were an animal, they have no single, even remote story other than hand-waving about where the furin cleavage site came in. That's not a simple story. One side says, Hey, we're going to put it in. That's our research program. The other side says, Hmm, I don't know. I don't want to talk about it. And yet we're supposed to believe that. I don't know. I don't want to talk about it as the definitive story. And just ignore <laughs> what you're seeing on the other side, which says, Hey, we are doing research to put that into SARS viruses.
0: Let me, let me just make sure I understand. So there was already a proposal in 2017 to insert the fear and cleavage site. Now that grant was not actually funded, but no one is saying now that the technologies or the methods that they were proposing to use wouldn't work in reality. No one is saying that, are they?
1: No, in fact, people are telling me that the research was actually done. In fact, actually done before the research proposal went in. Mm-hmm. So I, I've heard from one of the reviewers. Which is, which is common
0: in NIH, which is common yes. for NIH, we, yes. We, we,
1: because I expressed, to somebody, I expressed to somebody that the fact that the research proposal was turned down to my mind was meaningless in terms of the investigation because you Constantly make a research proposal, and if it gets turned down, you continue anyway. or you th- and the person said to me, Jeff, I was the reviewer. The research was done before the proposal went in. So it's even more than that we have the capability. i I think there I'd not heard from anybody, Not a single scientist to claim, that you couldn't make this thing. It's, it's pretty straightforward, not for me, but for those who do this. And Barrick's reverse genetic system technology is the platform that makes this stuff. And so nobody's saying it can't be done. What we do know is it was the intention to do it. What we do know is that there was a massive library of materials that is uh, genetic material to do this. What we do know from Barrick, also, very interestingly, is the motivation to do it, or at least one motivation. He explains in one interview in a quite fascinating way. He says, look, nature makes all sorts of new viruses and so forth. We need to be ready with vaccines. And we need the most powerful possible vaccines because we don't know what's gonna come after us. So we need to test our vaccines against the most powerful pathogens. And we can't just expect that we're going to collect the most powerful pathogens. We need to make the most powerful pathogens so that we can actually test the vaccines against them. And this is stated in a 2015 interview.
0: I I just want to emphasize, Jeffrey, that from the national security standpoint, that's not crazy, right? So if, if you think, the, this is the way that our enemies are going to make a really dangerous weapon. Well, we need to make it ourselves and test vaccines against it. So it's absolutely not, it's could be crazy from a NADSEC perspective, right? It's dangerous, but it, you can understand why they would act that way, operate that way.
1: It is true, but it is crazy to do it in a BSL-2 facility, meaning to do these experiments on dangerous pathogens in a low biosafety level lab. Do- which did is you really apparently two, Did you really okay. mean two or three? I, I thought they I, were... I, I, I meant two because I've been told that, that in Wuhan, this was done in BSL-2 conditions. I don't know whether that's absolutely I the fact. But should, that's what I was told.
0: It should definitely be three or above. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: You know, they when they're in the spacesuits, that's four. But yeah. that's for show because most of the <laughs> the ironic thing, you know, with it, it is, as I understand it, and I... I I may misunderstand uh, some of these points, certainly. But as I understand it, since SARS was not so infectious, it was not classified in a pathogenic level that required a ESL 4 And one thought is that one of the reasons why the U.S. was partnering up with China, partly it was to get access to the vaccine, to the virus uh, strains that were there, no doubt. Partly, it may have been to observe what the Chinese were doing. And partly it may have been because they were doing it faster and quicker in a lower BSL facility. So if it had to be done in the US, there would have been a lot of bureaucracy and a lot of problems, but doing it at Wuhan wouldn't raise those problems. So I think where we are is rather straightforward. And that is the following. You have two hypotheses. They're both still viable, could have come out of nature. It could have come out of a lab. There's nothing which rules out the laboratory. And the accumulation of the bad behavior points more and more towards the lab. Uh, because, uh, now we understand the dangerous research program. We understand the experiments. We understand the library of, of, un- of unreported viruses. We understand the, the research setting in which this was done and so on. So I think the evidence has gone more and more towards the laboratory as being the very likely explanation. The market hypothesis has many deep
0: problems, actually, many gaps and flaws. Uh, let me just, let me just give the strongest defense of Barrick and Daycheck and these guys, maybe they were doing this research and maybe they were even encouraged by national security interests of the United States to do this research, and maybe they didn't. You know, ultimately, maybe Covid was not a lab leak, but these guys are defending themselves because they know that they could take a lot of the heat because of their previous activities if if that narrative took hold. is, is that is that a reasonable defense of these guys, or is that is that too charitable?
1: <laughs> well, it's possible. You know, what 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 we know is that they're not telling us the truth about possibilities. That's for sure. We know they concocted a narrative. We don't know the full story. Why there are many reasons why one is they don't know what happened. Maybe research was being done. Maybe Wuhan went off on its own and did things and they, they just don't know. That's one possibility. Second possibility is they know they were part of it and they're covering it up. Third possibility is done. We're not sure, but we sure don't want people looking at our bio defense research because we got a lot of it. It's secret, it's classified, and we don't want people poking their noses into it. So I think the the fact is we don't know, but frankly, it's not a defense. I, I think for scientists, the only defense is, here's our lab notebooks. Here's what we were doing. The chips will fall where they might, and we need to know. That's, by the way, the only justifiable position in this, which is that there is transparency. So we figure out what the heck is really going on, where this came from, what the risks are, what we need to do to stop this pandemic and, and move forward to stop future pandemics. You know, there's a lot of dangerous research underway. I think this is irrefutably true, but it's unsupervised. So this is another reason to find this out because (laughs) if it didn't happen this time, it's going to happen the next time. and We really need to get this under control. I personally lost uh, confidence in NIH in this. We never got an honest view. Not only that, we got a deliberately concocted false narrative about this. And that's not satisfactory when you're dealing in high stakes risks, because (laughs) where, where could the trust possibly be? I think there are a couple of other things to add, Steve, that are uh, important in this. It, it, we heard, but I don't think we were hearing clearly enough what Robert Redfield, the head of the Centers for Disease Control, was saying to us. He was the head of one half of the U.S. response to the pandemic. He believed from the start that this very likely came out of a laboratory and Fauci shut him down. And Redfield knows a lot. So this is not some crazy outside view. This is the view of one of the most significant insiders. Someone extraordinarily experienced, by the way, in the U.S. biodefense sector, who is aware of who does what, when, and how. And who says, wait a minute, you never looked at the possibility of the laboratory. And when I raised it with Fauci, he, his response was to keep me out of all meetings rather than to take an honest view. So we have step-by-step more and more reason for thinking it's not just us looking in saying, God, this is weird. It's people that were right at the top in the midst of this, being stopped from having an honest view. And what Redfield and others have also pointed out is that while we did not pick up the signals from Wuhan in the fall, because there are signals coming from everywhere in the world all the time about things, and most of them are really noise in the end, if you look back retrospectively. It's pretty clear, at least according to what I'm told, that there were some strange things happening in Wuhan already in September and October. And that fits the normal phylogenetic clock for this outbreak. Because if you look at the variants, the mutations, the strains, and you try to figure out when the original spillover occurred, the dating is October or November not December, the market hypothesis depends on this being December. It depends on the market being the place where the spillover took place, not just a place where the virus was spread, but the genetic evidence, but also the human intelligence evidence looked at retrospectively suggests that something was happening in Wuhan, an outbreak already in September or October. And that this was you know, potentially knowable, but in the noise of uh, daily events, it, it it probably wasn't really picked up until a retrospective look at the evidence. But I think that the point is we, we have enough to say we need an independent investigation in the United States, not waiting on China, but what NIH was doing what major U.S. scientific labs were doing, what they know, what the experiments were, when they were done, show us the lab books. And we have
0: enough reason to go to that now. Now, Jeff, you're a real world guy. You know more about how the real world operates than almost any academic. So what are the chances, what's a scenario where we do actually get this level of transparency in the United States? the us is really good at shutting down uh,
1: investigations uh, that's been true my my whole life it, it took me a long time to understand they shut down any honest investigation of the kennedy assassination and almost anything afterwards that has been really i won't use the term i would normally use it's not for polite company but any of these events the iraq war on false pretenses and all the rest We almost never investigate these things. And so this is pretty tough. This is calling for an investigation of ourselves and we don't like to investigate ourselves and our government runs on secrecy. It has really run on secrecy since the end of World War II, since the, the the U.S. became the world's superpower and there's so much. That goes on. I know it only, you know, I see a lot of the shadows, the doors closing and other things because I do see a lot, but I never see the inner sanctum. I'm not in the inner, inner sanctum and I don't pretend to be, and I don't want to be for that matter because I don't like what they're doing in there. But the, the point is that we, we typically don't get honesty on core issues like this one. And so I can't say that the chances are good, but I would say, practically speaking, the, the Republican side of the House and the Senate has said something weird's going on. The Democrats have circled the wagons around Fauci, strangely, because the origin of SARS-CoV-2 is not a left-right issue in my view, but in any event, it turned into a left-right issue like everything else in our country, and it is possible that if the Republicans win one or both houses of the Congress in the November elections, that they will launch an independent investigation. I just don't know, but it's not the typical modus operandi of the U.S. government.
0: I, I just want to share one. I wanted to give you as much time to talk as, as you need. I just want to share one story. So not so long before COVID began, I was in London. I had a meeting with Jeremy Farrar on a different matter. And I met his deputy, who is a former MI, I don't know if it's five or six. The
1: former uh, head of former head of MI5.
0: MI5, yes. Yeah. So my feeling on this is that if the government is nervous because they have treaty obligations about bioweapons, but they don't want to completely give it up, it's very natural for them to funnel it through the NIH or funnel it through the Wellcome Trust, for example, which is the largest funder of... Medical research in the UK, I believe, or at least one of them. It's not surprising that spooky people want this program to continue for maybe legitimate national defense reasons, but they want to put it at arm's length so that they can play Fauci or NIH or welcome if they have to, but they want to keep some tabs on it. And it's also a good way to keep tabs on what scientists in other countries like China are doing if you're funding some of their work. If, if you have contacts with the leading researchers, maybe they're not doing anything related to. Defense. Maybe they're just trying to, un, you know, understand how to build better vaccines. Nevertheless, you get a view into what is going on research-wise in that country, and the former students of those people that you're monitoring, they're probably they may be working in the defense establishment in that other country. So, I'm almost certain this whole network of stuff exists, and it's this kind of network that would close like this and prevent you from getting the full story of what of what actually happened with COVID. So, I, I, any comments on that? One of the authors of the Proximal Origins
1: uh, said to me, I asked, how did you get into this? He said, well, Jeremy, for our spook friends, called him and were very concerned about, you know, where this virus came from. And then Jeremy called me. So that, or he, there was a chain of calls. But he said, by himself, Jeremy's spook friends. Well, yes, what we're seeing is, Th- the behavior of a highly secretive part of our government, we're not seeing much of it, but we're seeing glimpses of it. So there's no doubt that this is part of quote, biodefense, whatever that means. And we're not supposed to see that uh, according to uh, strictures, but unfortunately an epidemic broke out that has claimed 18 million lives. So. People are rather interested of where this came from. And I think what you're saying is absolutely correct. This is a network and it's a network that is the opposite of transparent. And yet science, when it gets involved in such networks, is really unpleasant actually. You know, science is our vital, vital hold on reality. It's our vital way to address complex challenges, but of course, it's constantly suborned by by the state, by power. And this was true of the nuclear age, of course. It started as a secret state project to make an atomic bomb. It meant that a lot of physics was really under the aegis of the security state. And now we see that biology is under the aegis of the security state. And a lot of high tech is under the aegis of the security state. And the security state doesn't tell us what's going on. They think for our own good, I'm not so sure. But the point is that we don't see even, and and one of the funny things about the security state is that even when things are in plain view, they're denied. So gaslighting, so-called, is a core part of the behavior of of the security state, you see something obvious, you say it and they say, no, that's not there. No, that's not true.
0: That's that's not true. And that's normal behavior. I, I saw you on Bloomberg the other day talking about Nord Stream and who did Nord Stream, which I think most people in the world think there's at least a strong possibility the US did it. And the idea that our media and government cannot even address that obvious possibility is just, it's like living in uh, Orwell's book.
1: Nord Stream is hilarious because uh, in its way, hilarious, strange word, but Biden said, we have our ways to take this out. He said, if Russia invades, that's the end of this pipeline. Oh, Mr. President, how, how could you say that? He said, we have our ways. Then you have on just an online app, the ability to track planes. So we see a U.S. Poseidon flying over the site before boom. And then when boom goes off, you have the former foreign minister of Poland, Radek Sikorski, whom I know saying, thank you USA. And, and tweeting a picture of, of, of the, the the massive leak. And, And then you look at motive, which is that the U.S. has wanted to shut this down the whole time. And naturally, what do we hear in our media? I don't know, big mystery. Then, because I I travel around the world, people say to me, Jeff, I, I, one, one lead reporter who I'm not going to say more, just said, of course, course, Jeff, it's the U S and I said, it'd be nice if your newspaper mentioned that once in a while. But that is exactly like this. You see it straight out and you cannot get a straight answer you get, well, you're not welcome on this show. I was supposed to be on for <laughs> a bit longer, but that was the end of that interview. So this is uh, this is how this world works.
0: Just to clarify that point, because it was the first time i had heard it from you when you were on Bloomberg, that there are publicly available radar logs of a helicopter, I think of the type the U.S. military uses, which left Gdansk, flew near the pipeline. And that was soon before the the, the yeah, explosion. It, it,
1: it seems that it's not a helicopter, if I understand it correctly better. It 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 is some kind of military aircraft. And there's a Twitter account at Sander underscore 2021 on an October 1 tweet where you can look. I can't evaluate more than that, but it shows it shows a plane that is refueled in midair, then flies over the site does a, a little curlicue and then flies off. And uh, this was tweeted already on October 1. And you can, uh, you know, it's it's on, on the website uh, and people can evaluate it. I, I can't fully, I mean, I can't even, I won't use the word fully. I can't evaluate it, but uh, boy, I, I want answers. I want answers to this, just like I'd like answers to to COVID, not just, we don't discuss this. I, I'll give you another one if, if, if there's... Just to to riff on this for, for one more moment, we've had this extraordinarily dangerous shelling of the Zaporozhye nuclear power plant. Now, the Russians control the plant, and the Ukrainians are trying to take it back. And the shelling is of the plant. And our newspapers say, well, we don't know who's shelling it, but it's very dangerous. And I say, well, if the Russians are inside and the Ukrainians are trying to take it over, maybe it's the Ukrainians shelling it. But our media does not allow any word against the Ukrainian actions, not a word. So I've asked around to very senior people. They say, yeah, Jeff, of course, it's Ukraine shelling the power plant. But you can't find that in the public discourse. Because we are told stories and we're told them whether they make any sense, even when they're absolutely captured on film, doesn't matter. We're told stories and that's how the U.S. government operates.
0: You know, I think it's especially infuriating to scientists and academics who are used to carefully reading the evidence and demand some level of honesty and integrity and self-consistency in the kinds of things that they read. And the the current era is just, it's, it's, it's driving us nuts, I think.
1: Yeah. And also, you know, our lives are, you go into a seminar and your colleagues attack you to like nothing if you make one slip, because you're supposed to be on your toes with the evidence and, and being able to make your case. And that's a healthy process. You know, that, that, that's the really healthy process. So we're confronting a sociology of knowledge in this case that's completely different. The government's not interested in the truth. The government's interested in the message. The government's interested in the power. The government's interested in the outcome. The government may say very well, hey, we're protecting you, you idiot, whatever it is. (laughs) But it's not interested in, well, who took out the pipeline or who created or where did the virus come from or who's showing the power plant? Not interested in those questions, really.
0: Well, Jeff, I, I want to say I really admire your courage. And I, I imagine the last year of your life has been maybe qualitatively different from all the previous ones, because you've you come out against the narrative on some key topics. Do you, you want to say anything about that? What the, has there been a personal cost for you? Well, look, I I, I think we're in a dangerous situation worldwide, so I think we need some truth. That, that's the basic, basic point. Great. Maybe we should just end there, Jeff. That was fantastic.